James chapter 1. Tonight's reading will be James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to look into your word with fresh eyes, with fresh ears, with renewed spirits and renewed hearts. We ask that you would cause us tonight, in this very moment, to be hungry and thirsty for you, to be hungry and thirsty for what you have to say to us in tiny little verses like James chapter 1, verse 1. We ask, Father, that you would set straight our, distract, our distracted minds. We ask that you would help us to take what we need so very desperately from this little verse, to take it home, on the way home, while we get there, as we pillow our heads tonight and as we wake up tomorrow morning. Give us what we need to be what you've called us to be. Help us to be pleasing to you. Father, we are weak and without strength for all these tasks, for everything that you will call us to do in this day and the one to come. But you are our sufficiency. You are our strength. We plead with you, if not for our sake. Remember the one who is at your right hand. Consider his nail-scarred hands, his nail-scarred feet, his pierced side, his brow that once had the crown of thorns on it. Consider him and your great love for Him. And find all the cause you need to hear this prayer and to return it back to this little earth on this little congregation with power and effectiveness. Father, we ask these things in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, have you ever had a meeting that went something like this? You met with the person... You said hi, you shook hands, exchanged pleasantries with them, just kind of going through the motions, having the mere formality to be nice. So you talk about your spouses, your kids, sports, the weather, but then you get down to business. You get down to what you actually came to talk about in the first place, to the really important things. Well, with New Testament greetings, I fear that I'm tempted, and maybe you are as well, to treat them the same way that we treat those meetings. We come, we get the greetings, we get the small talk out of the way very quick, and we get on to more important things. I feel like sometimes we treat the greetings of the New Testament in the same way. So we might read what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we might read Jude chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Jude writes, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called 
sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We finish those sections, and we may think to ourselves, okay, now we can get to what's really important. We can get to the parts that are substantial, to the parts that are meaningful. After all, those were just the greetings, right? But here are a few questions that help to set that faulty thinking straight, or at least I hope will help to set that faulty thinking straight. In regard to the greetings of New Testament letters, are those verses any less inspired or inerrant or infallible than the rest? Does God intend for me or for you to read, meditate upon, study, or apply those verses any less than he intends for me or you to do that with any other portion of Scripture? Can we just afford to pass over verses like these? Well, tonight we'll be looking at a greeting, the one that I'd read just a few moments ago. A greeting that we can't disregard because it is God's Word, but also because it is pregnant with meaning and application for us today. But before we look directly at that verse, I want us to give ourselves a little context for James chapter 1, verse 1. The, James, the letter of James was written sometime in the early to mid-40s. So only 8 to 10 years after Christ has been crucified and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of His Father. And at this time, the New Testament church is young, and she's being fiercely persecuted already. So James writes to these persecuted Christians, these scattered Christians, to strengthen their faith and to help them walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. It's the whole reason why he wrote this. So, early to mid-40s, to encourage the believers who are scattered abroad. Well, let me just point out the obvious one more time. James wrote this letter. Right? No argument there, Chuck. James wrote the letter. The title of the letter says it was James. The first verse that we looked at says it was James. But which James is it? Who is this bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, biblical evidence and church history agree that this is more than likely James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus. We first lay our eyes upon James the Just, so to speak, when we read about Jesus being rejected in his hometown synagogue at Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 13, we read that those in the synagogue had become indignant at Jesus for the things that he read from the scroll, from the way that he exposited it. He says, Today in your hearing, this reading has been fulfilled. I am the fulfillment. I am before you. And evidently, according to Luke's account, he gives a very scathing exposition and application to the people at Nazareth. And then they begin to ask questions like this. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not Mary, his mother with us, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? They're essentially asking of Jesus, who is this man to speak to us? He's the neighborhood kid. We won't stand for this. And like many there in Nazareth that day, James is a confirmed unbeliever. We read in John chapter 7, verse 5, that James and his brothers did not believe in Jesus. 
However, God doesn't leave James there. James isn't set free to be James. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that Paul says, After that, that is, after the resurrection, Jesus was seen by James, and then by all of the apostles. So the risen Christ appears to his half-brother, his unbelieving brother, James, after having seen the Lord Jesus Christ, becomes one of his followers. And not only does he become one of Jesus' followers, but he becomes a prominent leader in the early church, in that young, persecuted church. In Acts chapter 12, after Peter has been freed by the Lord from prison, Peter goes back to a group of Christians who are praying, and Peter speaks to them and says, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And that person departed and went to another place. Just three chapters later, in Acts chapter 15, James is mentioned again, and he's speaking at the Jerusalem council. He's speaking as to whether or not we ought to make the Gentiles observe circumcision, be on the receiving end of circumcision in order to enter the church. But James speaks authoritatively, he speaks persuasively, and he speaks wisely against that. They don't have to be circumcised in order to enter the church to be full-blown Christians. So James, half-brother of Jesus, prominent leader in the early church, this is who writes this little letter and who writes this little greeting But that's not how James chooses to identify himself. For all of his accolades and for all of his prominence, he doesn't use either of those descriptions. He chooses, rather, to describe himself as a bondservant, as a slave. The commentator Bennett notes that this term doulos, which we translate bondservant, He says the term emphasizes the supreme and absolute authority of the master, as well as the entire submission of the slave. James wants wants his readers to know that is who he is, a bondservant, a slave, nothing more, nothing less. And really when we think about all the saints throughout the ages, whether we have James in mind or we go on down the list, The least in the kingdom and the greatest in the kingdom are all fundamentally bondservants, slaves. Here's my list. The apostles, Athanasius, Monica, who's Augustine's mother, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, C.H. Spurgeon, Helen Rosevere, Elizabeth Elliot, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur. And who is on your list? Who do you look at as being prominent and helpful and greatly used of the Lord? Whoever you list, however long it is, however you cut it, whoever you mention, they are all bondservants without exception. James goes on to describe to us that all are bondservants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. All are bondservants of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To our biblically literate ears, that phrase might sound redundant. Why not say, of God only, or of the Lord Jesus Christ only? Why use both terms and put them together? Well, James is seeking to put God, he's seeking to put the Lord Jesus Christ on the same level. He's seeking to emphasize Jesus' equality with the Father in case there's any doubt in the minds of these scattered, persecuted believers, Jesus is God. And James writes much in the same way that Jesus spoke in John chapter 10, verse 30, when he said, I and my Father are one. That is, we are one entity. One group, one will, one spirit, one mind, united Our catechism puts it another way in describing the members of the Trinity by saying that they are all the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So, believers who are persecuted and scattered abroad, if there's any doubt in your mind, let me chase it away. This Jesus, He is God. But it should also be pointed out that James gives Jesus the title of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, more Bible words that we're used to hearing, that we're used to seeing, that we're used to reading, that we're used to talking about. But each of these names is significant because they unfold the true nature of James' master, of my master, of your master, believer. He is the sovereign Lord who rules over all creation. He spoke it into existence. He sustains it with a word. He rules over it all. As R.C. Sproul once said, there are no maverick molecules. Or Abraham Kuyper said, Christ looks over all creation and says, mine. It's his. It belongs to him. But he is also the God-man who alone saves sinners. He is the Christ the enfleshment, the embodiment and fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises of God. That is James' master. And if you are here and a believer, that is your master. That is who James belonged to, and that is who you presently belong to. That is who has supreme and absolute authority over James, and that is who has supreme and absolute authority over you and I. That's who James sought to submit every area of his life to, and that is the same way that it ought to be for each and every one of you who name the name of Christ. You seek entire submission to them, excuse me, to him. Have you ever said something like this? I wish I could have lived in biblical times. To see what they saw to hear what they heard, to know what they knew. Use your spiritual imagination with me just for a moment. Put yourself in James's shoes. Go with me back to the beginning for James. And I mean all the way back. James, in relation to Jesus, he came from the same womb as Jesus. He nursed from the same mother was raised by the same mom and dad, grew up in the same home, 
grew up in the same synagogue, had the same occupation, heard Jesus' sermons, saw his miracles, and the list goes on. Who could have asked for a better view of the life of Jesus of Nazareth than James? Who could have wanted more than James received in seeing this life lived out before him? And yet, James' life prior to knowing the resurrected Jesus is a warning to us all. It isn't enough to know Jesus according to the flesh, to know him historically as a historical figure, to know him intellectually as a fact. We must know him, all of us, firsthand, experientially. Secondhand knowledge is not enough. It will not do. We must know Jesus in the power of his resurrection for ourselves. James saw Jesus with his physical eyes and heard Jesus with his physical ears. But that wasn't enough, though it was a tremendous blessing. James needed the day of Jesus' power to come in his life. He needed to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He needed that desperately. And we need it too. We need God to show us Jesus in this book every day, verse by verse, moment by moment, trial by trial, blessing by blessing. God... Cause this to come to life. You must do it. You must give me eyes to see. You must give me ears to hear. You must give me a heart to love. God, you must. I'm poor and needy, but God in you is an infinite storehouse. You are riches untold. God, give me. And God is pleased to do just that. Well, hopefully that stirs... And hopefully this comforts. James belonged to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Belonged to Him. Purchased by Him. You may not be persecuted and you may not be scattered abroad tonight. But I'll assume that each of you here are going through some sort of trial. In the midst of your trials, who is your comfort? In the midst of your trials, who is your strength? Who fills up your heart? Fills it up to the brim with hope. True, lasting, eternal hope. When answering this question, the Heidelberg Catechism knocks it out of the park. Question one, we've probably all heard it somewhere at some time. It gives us much to lay hold of, much to be comforted by, to put strength in us. What is your only comfort in life and death? Listen very closely to this answer. Listen very closely. That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not one hair falls from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily and willingly and readily from now on live for Him. Believer, do you believe that? You've believed Christ the first time. Are you clinging to realities like this presently? Jesus is your faithful Savior. He's fully paid for your sins. You're justified before God. He set you free from the tyranny of the old master. He preserves your life in such a way that without His sovereign will, not one of your hairs falls off your head. That's intimacy. That's care. That is what He has purchased for you. Well, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What about those to whom James writes, the recipients of his letter? He writes to the twelve tribes. To the twelve tribes. James writes to Jewish Christians who have been persecuted and driven away from their homeland in Israel. And he seeks to comfort and strengthen them by addressing them as the twelve tribes. Think with me for a moment. If you're a Jew, your whole life up until eight to ten years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ saved you, you were thoroughly Jewish. You were familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. You read them every day. You recited them every day. You talked about them every day. You'd go to the synagogue or to the temple. You were saturated in this ideology, in this theology. So when James writes this, calling these Christians the New Testament people of God, the true Israel, they should have had their metaphorical wires tripped. Alarm bells started, should have started going off in their minds and in their hearts. Remember how God spoke about the twelve tribes to His people, Israel. Take one description. One of my favorite descriptions in all of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. This is how God talks about His covenant people. He says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Twelve tribes. Special people. 
the people that the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God determined, you are mine. I will plan whatever it takes to purchase you to myself, and I will execute all that is necessary to bring you to me. And we read on in verse 9 of that chapter in Deuteronomy. Therefore, therefore, Moses says to the children of Israel, to the twelve tribes, know, reckon it, consider it, settle it in your minds, twelve tribes, the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God. That is who you are, and that is who you belong to. Unchangeably so. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes to another group of scattered believers later than James's letter. And he says to them, but you are, you are, it's definitive, unchangeable, a present reality. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Sounds like Deuteronomy 7, doesn't it? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You who were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You who once had not obtained mercy, now you have obtained mercy. In Ezekiel 16, when you read of the description of Israel's lineage, totally pagan, godless, without hope. But then, God looks upon Israel and says, Live. You are mine. So believer, what do you have to do in light of this? These Jewish Christians, first century Christians, they were the true Israel. All of you here in Christ, Believing Him, trusting Him, obeying Him. You all are the true Israel as well. So what do we do in light of truths like Deuteronomy 7 and 1 Peter 2? At least you preach to yourself every day who you belong to. Every day. You preach to yourself every day who you are in Christ. You preach to yourself every day His covenant, His promises, His faithfulness to people like you. And you don't stop until you meet Him face to face. You may not fill this pulpit. You may not have very many opportunities to speak to other people about the gospel, except for your family. But one person who ought to hear a sermon every day is you to yourself. Regarding these realities. Unbeliever. You are without Christ. You're an alien. To the commonwealth of Israel. You're a man or woman or child. Without a nation essentially. You're a stranger. To the covenants of promise. Paul goes on to say these words. I don't say it. Paul says it. You have no hope 
and you are without God in this world. You are left to yourself, to this world that desires nothing but your destruction and will eat you alive. What are you to do? Be jealous. Read this book. Hear these testimonies that God makes about His people. Look at your family, your spouse, your children, your siblings, your friends. Look at a life that says, I am Christ and Christ is mine. And be jealous. Don't let it harden you. Don't let it create anger and bitterness. I say don't let it create anger and bitterness. If it does, let it be that which drives you to Christ out of your anger and your bitterness. Out of your jealousy. Because you don't have what they have. You don't have what is fundamental, what is essential for life. Both now and forevermore. Be jealous. But more than jealousy... I pray that you hear me and that you do this much. You run to Christ. You run to the covenant keeper. You run to the covenant maker. To the faithful one. To the one who keeps all of his promises that he makes to all people. Are you hungry? Run to the bread of heaven. He will satisfy your soul. Are you thirsty? Run to the fountain of living water and He will quench the thirst of your soul. Are you without hope and without God in the world? He will fill your heart to the brim with true, lasting hope. He will be your God and Master who will secure you, who you will belong to, and He will not lose you for all eternity. Run to Him. Don't let this night pass. Without you running to Him. Now, James writes to the twelve tribes, which are dispersed abroad, scattered abroad. At this time, James' readers are probably living just north of Palestine, in unfamiliar territory with unfamiliar people. In situations like this, no doubt it would have been easy for them. To have doubt and fear creep in and take up residence. It's easy for us in our own trials for the same to happen. However, it's crucial to remember that these Jewish Christians weren't scattered at random. They weren't scattered at random. They weren't scattered by the enemy. Each Jewish Christian that James is writing to that reads this letter or doesn't read this letter, if they're a Jewish Christian scattered abroad, they were providentially sown by the hand of God. They are where they are, yes, by persecution. They're driven out. But overseeing all of this, superseding all of that, is the hand of God. Jewish Christian, why are you north of Palestine? Well, they drove me out. Yes, yes. But greater than that, you are there because God put his hand in the bucket of seeds, so to speak. 
and with perfect wisdom, perfect might, perfect love, scattered you in North Palestine, north of Palestine. The persecution wasn't by chance. Having to leave their homeland wasn't by chance. God had orchestrated it for His glory, for the eternal good of His people, and for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why they were scattered abroad. And think about it in one way. The congregation here at Christ Church is very similar to James Readers in this regard. You are here now because you have been providentially sown here by the hand of God. You've been sown by His hand to be here now. In thinking about where many of you are from and how you made your way here, I observe that we have people here from California, New Mexico, Texas, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Arkansas, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, New York, New Jersey, Ethiopia, China, South Korea, and in years past, Canada. Do you think people on their own would find this place? <laughs> would find New Albany? No, they wouldn't. All of these people, you, you were sown here. Not only from where you're originally from or how you came here, but you were sown with the spouse that you have, with your children, with your parents, with your siblings, your friends, your job, your house, your neighborhood, and so on. So to speak, every one of you are living north of Palestine right now. You're living north of Palestine right now. And here's what I would ask of you. Don't look back to Jerusalem. God has put you here. Don't look ahead to what's next, to what might be in the next 2, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Don't look at what's next. You are here right now. Listen to the words of Jim Elliott, missionary to Ecuador, martyr. Wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. So the question for all of you here, are you all here? Is your heart here? Is your mind here? Is your spirit and your desire here? Where God has placed you. With whom God has placed you. Trusting Him. Obeying Him. Here. Where you are. Unbeliever. You have been providentially sown here as well. Sown here to hear the gospel. Sown to see the gospel. And I believe to come to embrace Christ. To embrace Christ as your sovereign Lord. As your salvation. As your Christ. I don't believe that any unbeliever here was sown here only for your heart to be hardened and for you to be cast into outer darkness in the end. 
I don't believe that is why God has sown you here. Whether you've moved here as an adult, were born into a family, or were adopted into a family. God has not brought you here for your destruction. God is far too good and far too gracious to have brought you here only for that end. How do I know that? Because I'm standing in front of you, trying my best to herald the gospel, to call you to Christ. And it's another evidence of his graciousness to you. That he did not will destruction primarily for you. Presently, while you stand afar off from Christ, he calls your name. And you hear your name in your mind, in your heart, and in your conscience. You hear it. He's called your name in many ways and for many years. But you continue to reject him. So I'll ask you, will you come to him today while it is today? Will you stop hardening your heart against him? Will you surrender to his supreme and absolute authority? Will you submit yourself entirely to his gracious will? Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't let another opportunity come to come to Jesus pass by you. Instead, cry out. Join blind Bartimaeus and say this much to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Hear me. Save me. Don't pass me by. And do you remember what Bartimaeus did when the disciples in their foolishness said, shh, be quiet. Don't. Don't you see he has important business to take care of? Bartimaeus cried out all the more, more intensely. Christ will not pass me by, or if he does, he will have heard me and I will ring in his ears. Cry out with that intensity, with that determination. Lastly, greetings. Such a simple word. Again, could be thought of as insignificant, but this little word ends this little verse. And the Greek word translated greetings could also be translated rejoice or be glad. And what I've just described to you, though imperfectly, from James chapter 1, verse 1, Would you agree with me that we have more than enough in this little verse, this seemingly insignificant verse, to cause us to rejoice and be glad, whether we're in Christ or not? Why? Because this little verse points us to who we belong to, to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This little verse points us to who we are in Him, bondservants, true Israel, belonging to God. And it points us to his providential hand, scattered abroad. Well, tonight, whether you belong to Christ or you're yet outside of Christ, don't let it be another sermon where you don't make room 
for Christ. However big or however small. What has Christ said to you? What has he communicated? What have you been convicted about? Hear his voice. Obey his command. May it be the sweetest thing for Christ to be your master. May it be the sweetest thing for you to think about being under the supreme and absolute authority of Christ. And for you to be entirely submitted to Christ. Well, may our God help us to truly rejoice in Him. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that You would sanctify to us Your precious Word. Your supernatural, Your authoritative Word. Please, God. We are poor and needy. But like David said, You take thought after us. Take thought after each eternal soul in this congregation. Whether they belong to You or they are yet outside of Christ. Take notice of them as you took notice of Levi in the tax collector's booth, commanding him, follow me. Oh God, may you have in this little congregation a group of followers who seek you, who delight in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Good night.